If it feels like we're getting to the message a little earlier this morning, we are because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end and uh, go out together with our minds and hearts focused on the name of Christ we've just sung about and we will declare more about Him when we take the supper together. But now we're in His Word, John 11, or actually John 12, 1 to 11, but I'm going to begin reading in chapter 11, verse 55, to give us just a little bit of context. So find your place there, John, beginning in chapter 11, verse 55. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. Remember, they have put a death warrant on His head. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself uh, to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, Lord, this is your word to us as it opens up a window into the events surrounding not only the coming of Your Son into this world, but now we see uh, advancing toward His death, burial, and resurrection, the heart of the Gospel message. So please give us eyes that are open to see, ears prepared to hear, hearts that are hungry like well-plowed and tilled fields ready to receive the Word implanted which is able to save the Word implanted which gives growth and fruit to those that Your grace has gripped. And so we pray that You will banish all our our distracted thinking, all of our uh, cares beyond this moment. And for a moment we'll be ready to hear from You. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. We're now in the fast lane leading up to the death of Jesus on the cross. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has sent the Jewish leaders into a panic. You'll remember from 
Chapter 11, verse 47, that they had called together a meeting of the council, the Sanhedrin, and they, they said to one another, what are, we, what are we going to do with this man? He's performing all these signs. If we let him continue like this, the Romans will hear of it. They'll come and they'll take away our place and our nation. And so the decision was made by the council. Jesus must die. Verse 50. So from that point on, John tells us Jesus withdrew from Jerusalem and its environs to a little village near the desert called Ephraim, verse 54 says. And there he waited with his disciples until Passover had come. We don't know how long they were there, probably just a few weeks, maybe just a couple of weeks. But as we open chapter 12, we see that Passover is less than a week away. Uh, six days, it says. And so Jesus and His crew have returned to Bethany, the scene of the great miracle, to attend a banquet in His honor. Lazarus is there, as are Mary and Martha, the sisters who played such a central role in all these events. And it's here at this banquet that something unexpected and beautiful, but also controversial, happens. And so let's begin by looking at a shocking act of beautiful devotion in verses 1, 2, and 3. It says again, six days before the Passover, Jesus has returned. He's come to Bethany again where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. Now, the setting for this shocking act is a banquet. We're not actually sure who hosted this supper. It's, it's not the home of Lazarus. He's listed as one of the guests. Mary, uh, not Mary, but Martha is there serving. And by the way, isn't that just like her? So some think it could be her home. But according to both Matthew and Mark, as they describe this same event, it's in the home of someone called Simon the leper. And we really have no idea who he is. Uh, more than likely, this is a dinner that is being given by the whole town together. Jesus has done this amazing thing in their midst for Lazarus and his family, a prominent citizens of that community, and they want to express their appreciation. Perhaps Simon's home is one of the few places large enough to hold this dinner. And Martha is there serving because, well, that's just what she does, right? That's her nature as we see in other passages of Scripture. So the guests were there, and they would have been reclining around a low table in typical Mideastern fashion. So don't think of them sitting in chairs like we would. They're reclining with food at the center on the table and feet facing away from the table, which is obviously what you would want to be the case. Somewhere in the course of that meal, Mary walks in. And again, typical, at least from Martha's perspective, Mary's not there helping with the dinner. She's come to be near Jesus. And as she enters, she's carrying something. 
Both Matthew and Mark describe it as an alabaster flask used normally to hold a precious ointment, a perfume, uh, these kinds of precious things. And she steps in behind Jesus, kneels by His feet, breaks open that flask, and begins to anoint His feet with what's inside. Instantly, uh, the room is filled with the sweet smell of pure nard. Verse 3 says, now John makes a point of, of telling us that it is pure nard, not the cheap stuff, very expensive and lots of it. Nard or spike nard it's sometimes called as well comes from a plant found in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in far off India. That's one reason it's so very expensive. It comes from so far away and it, it took quite an effort to produce nard in any kind of quantity. It was a rare, beautiful, rose-colored balm valued for its sweet fragrance, treasured by many. In fact, it was the kind of thing people would purchase and hold on to for years, uh, even leaving it as an inheritance for their children uh, on many accounts. So, so where Mary got this, we can only guess. Was her family really that wealthy to be able to afford this? Or, or was this perhaps a precious family heirloom passed down to her? As Mary brings it into the room, she has only one thought on her mind, though. It's not its value. It's not the cost. Her only thought is to lavish this gift on Jesus. I mean, what else, what else do you do for the man who has stepped into your darkest moment of grief and despair and poured out such light and love and mercy on you and your family like Christ has done? And so this is an act of pure, unadulterated gratitude. It's an expression of her loving devotion to the one she knows she owes so very much. We talked last week about the intellectual side of faith, the need to believe certain things that are true about Jesus. But here we see also that there is an affectional side of faith, these deep feelings of gratitude and devotion and love for Christ who has done these things. And so notice in this gift of Mary, notice first the lavish nature of this gift We've already talked about the cost and we'll come back to that. But, but notice the lavish amount. The, a Roman pound works out to about half a liter or conveniently enough a 12 ounce can full of ointment. Just almost exactly like the cans you would drink soda from. Now normally this would be enough to last for years. You know a little dabble do you? She dumps it all. On Jesus, And it is a ridiculous amount to spend in one place, in one moment, but she doesn't care. As far as she's concerned, He's worth every drop. Notice also the humility in the way she lavishes this gift on Him. She kneels at His feet. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, feet were considered gross, vile, nasty. To even touch another person's feet. I mean, imagine they were always open to sandals and the dust, the dirt, uh, the, the animal droppings that would have been a part of the typical village feet. To touch someone else's feet was beneath your dignity. Only the lowliest and most despised of slaves would be forced to actually touch another person's feet. Here she kneels willingly 
to lavish her gift upon His feet. Interesting, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Mary, three times that we find her in the Gospels, and all three times we find her at the feet of Jesus, either listening to Him teach, weeping as she pleads with Him, or worshiping. I'm sure there were some in the room who saw her and would think, come on woman, what do you think you're doing? I mean, get up, that's humiliating. You're embarrassing yourself. She wouldn't care. (laughs) Because he's her king. And she's just a servant. And that's how she sees herself. And that's who she wants to be. I mean, this, this is her happy place. Near him. Lying at his feet. Rendering service to him that is costly and beautiful. Notice third also the personal intimate nature of this gift she gives. There's there's too much oil for his feet. The excess begins to flow. Uh, The other Gospels mention some of it going on his head as well. But John focuses on his feet and on the the humility of her gift there on the feet. So, So what do you do with the excess? Normally, you would take a towel and you would wipe up whatever excess there might be. And then, of course, it could be reused. But she doesn't have a towel. She, she bows and begins to use her hair. And that's shocking. Those present watching this would have been embarrassed for her. Eyebrows would have been raised all over the room because a proper Jewish woman would never let her hair down in public. Like this, her hair was her glory. It was a sign of her, of her femininity. And to let down your hair in any public setting would be seen as a violation of that which is right because the hair was private. It was meant for your family only and especially for a husband. You didn't do this. Just think of Middle Eastern culture today. We often equate it with, 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 with Islam. But where do you think Islam got the idea that a woman's head needs to be covered and her hair not shown in public? That, that comes from the Middle Eastern culture. Just the very doing of this thing would mark her off in their eyes as some, some kind of loose woman, some shameless woman who doesn't care anything about what people think of her. Maybe even a little addled in the brain like some homeless old hag. You just, again, didn't do this. She did it. And she didn't care what they thought. Why? Because it's Jesus. And because He's the King. And He's worthy of all her affection and wealth and attention and service and dignity. And so she lavishes it all on Him. Then notice the expansive nature of this gift. The joy of what she has done begins to spread and impact many besides herself. John says that the fragrance of that perfume fills the whole house. Hey, here's an experiment you can do at home. Okay, kids, I'm just kidding with this. It's an illustration. Don't actually do this. But, But imagine if you were to take the biggest bottle of perfume you could find, maybe one about this size. And, and you were to break that bottle open in your living room. How quickly would that smell diffuse throughout the entire house and just everything would be touched by that smell? 
One commentary says that Mary has anointed Jesus so lavishly that everyone there gets to participate. And so in this this beautiful act of loving devotion, giving all that she has, Mary has poured out this fragrant aroma of worship. That this sweet fragrance of her loving devotion in that moment gets on everything. It, It permeates Everywhere, it's, it's all over her. Just as our loving devotion for Jesus ought to permeate our lives and everything we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul, drawing a similar image, says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. You can even imagine Jesus, the conqueror, and us at His feet as those whom He has brought into His sway. And then he says, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so this beautiful act of devotion, and and Jesus does call it beautiful in Matthew 26.10. He says, She has done a beautiful thing for me. This beautiful act of loving devotion, giving all she has, uh, holding nothing back, lavishing her, her most precious treasure on Christ. In this act, Mary presents us with a sterling picture of a true disciple. Here is someone who not only believes the truth about Jesus, but who loves the Jesus that truth has revealed and willingly gives all for Him and expresses that love she has for Him with acts of costly, pure devotion, lavish praise, willing to bear any cost, willing to bear any scorn to honor Him. And it is Him... That is the focus. I had this thought as I was preparing. I thought, think what beauty in Him has drawn this act of beautiful devotion from her. We often look at her and say, what a beautiful act. But, but, but it's Him. It's His presence. It's His beauty that has drawn this from her. That's the nature of her faith that we see here. What a contrast it's going to be to Judas, the so-called disciple who is not a disciple, and Mary, the woman who is the disciple here. Could these words be used to describe your faith? Not just true belief in Christ, but a pure affection, a full devotion to Christ. Dear friend, does a love for Christ beat at the heart of your faith. A love that that moves you to acts of pure devotion, willingly, joyfully, to want to spend time with Him, to, 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 to desire to sit at His feet and learn from Him, to lavish Him with your praise, to, to pour out upon Him your greatest treasures. What is your greatest treasure? For me, I think often it's my time which I guard because there never seems to be enough of it. And I look at this and say, but He is worthy of all of it. Are you willing to lavish on Him and to pour at His feet the greatest treasure of your life? Now some will look at that and they'll call it a radical thing, right? A fanaticism. You know, this is just taking religion a little bit too far. Church, we should call that normal Christianity. 
Which brings us to the second thing, and that is there will always be people who will ridicule a lavish devotion to Christ. Verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. I had a friend in college, uh, when he got saved and told his unbelieving father about it, his dad said to him, that, that's fine, son, just, just don't be a fanatic. And my friend responded, but dad, that's the only kind of Christian there is. To the unbelieving world, a deep devotion to Christ, where Christ truly comes first, will seem radical, ridiculous. But notice here, not just to the unbelieving world, here even with a so-called believer, an unbelieving follower is going to mock this genuine expression of faith as radical. Judas, one of those who claimed to be a disciple of Christ, an outward follower of Christ, rebukes her for her lavish devotion. Now there's some evidence from Matthew and Mark that he's really just giving voice to something the other disciples are thinking as well, but he is the one who says it. And the the way he says it, it's an open rebuke to her. Why this waste? Is how he puts it in Matthew 26, 8. I mean, foolish woman! Don't you know how much that's worth? What's wrong with you? And it is worth a lot. 300 denarii, that's a year's salary for the average working man in that day. A denarii was what you'd be paid for one day's hard labor. Uh, Eliminate the Sabbaths when you can't work, and that's a year's salary. So what would that be for us today? Uh, uh, $35,000, $40,000 perhaps? And you've wasted it on its feet. Just think what could have been done with all that money. Is he right? Well, on the surface, he is right. That is a lot of money. It it could have purchased a lot of food to feed a lot of people, no doubt about it. And if caring for the poor was truly what Judas had in mind, he, he might even have a point. At least it's a question worth asking. But that's not what's really going on here, is it? There's something more at work here than a genuine concern for the poor. We're told that Judas himself is a thief. Judas has charge of the money bag. That bag they kept perhaps for some of their own expenses, but more than likely also to give alms to those they found in need. And Judas has been holding that bag, skimming a little off the top uh, whenever he got the chance. No, really, this is a clash of values. In fact, it seems to me that there are at least two things behind this statement of Judas. First of all, this is an example, I think, of what we today would call virtue signaling. Making statements about what you ought to care for because you want to be seen making that statement. Again, does Judas actually care for the poor? No, verse 6 makes that really, really clear. In case we missed it, he said this not because he cared for the poor. He doesn't care about the poor. What he cares about is being seen as someone who cares for the poor. He wants to be seen by those around him as expressing the right kind of concern. I mean, look how socially engaged I am. I'm making this public statement. 
And he makes a public statement, by the way, not about what he ought to do, but about what someone else ought to do. It's always interesting when people do that. He makes this public statement about what she should have done for the poor, not out of any real concern for the poor, but out of a concern for himself, that he be seen as someone who has the right concerns. Do you ever see that going on? If you're on any kind of social media, you see it all the time, right? Click like, repost if... Uh, here's this thing, you know, and, and, and of course in today's culture it's very often, you know, some kind of, you know, faddish social concern or what we more conservatives might consider liberal concern. And so we see this, we see companies doing this all the time, we see, we, we, we see uh, the world doing this all the time, but let's be honest, we also see us as Christians doing this. We just have different causes. And every time you see it, every time we do it, It stinks with the foul odor of vile self-aggrandizement. Jesus warns, doesn't He, in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's grandstanding. Second, We also see that Judas is motivated here by a pragmatism that puts money, influence, and power ahead of devotion to Jesus. When Mary looked at that flask, she saw a costly gift worthy of a king and desired to lavish it all on Jesus. When Judas saw the same flask, he saw dollar signs and the power and the influence that money could bring. I mean, think about it. You start doling out cash and gifts. You can build a following real quick. You can pump your numbers up pretty fast. Look how ready the crowds were to follow Jesus and make Him their king after He fed the 5,000. I'm certain Judas noticed that. And he probably thought Jesus blew that one, didn't take advantage of that wonderful opportunity for, for influence and power, but now, come on Jesus, here's another chance. All this money in the right hands, and of course by that he meant his own hands, could bring such power and influence. Judas, like many today, is blind to the simple value of having Christ and so puts his trust not in Christ, but things and money and power and influence. Perhaps even imagining he would have these things for Christ. Church, where are we putting our trust? You know, if we could just win the next election, if we could just get the right people on our side, get the right platform... Just a couple of principles I was thinking about, and we'll move on. A couple of general applications. First of all, I think we need to remember that whenever we as Christians put our hope in buying influence and power through politics or social engagement apart from the gospel, we lose sight of the beauty and power of Christ, which is our true treasure. Uh, To put it another way, when social activism or partisan politics on either side of the aisle shape the gospel, we lose the gospel. Second, I was thinking how in politics those who make the most noise about care for the poor are usually the least likely to actually do so. I'll give you an example, and this is as political as I'll get. 
there are well-known politicians. I won't name them. You can, you've got internet. You can find this. It's all public information. But I've, I've noticed there are those who may have made their careers harping about what we should be doing for the poor. And yet when you look at their own charitable giving records, you realize they've actually done very little or next to nothing. I'm thinking of a particular gentleman. I looked up his stuff this week and very well known for his positions on how we ought to do this or that. And yet in his own personal giving, it's far less than 1%. And I look at that, and I'm not calling his name. You can look it up yourself. I can only conclude that like Judas, the real concern is not the poor themselves, but the power and influence that can be gained by appearing to help the poor with other people's money. Now, does that mean we shouldn't care about the poor? No, absolutely we should, and we'll come back to that. But, but it's just a principle I've observed. Judas is our illustration. Because our calling as Christians is not to grandstand or virtue signal, but out of pure devotion to Christ, serve Him, and in serving Him, serve others for Him. Which brings us into the third thing to see here, and that is how Jesus here affirms the priority of putting devotion to Him first. Verse 7 and 8. In response to Judas, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it, the, 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 what she has just done, for the day of my burial, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. First of all, he rebukes Judas for his presumption. It's very personal. You, you leave her alone, Judas. It's a command, and I think there's fire in his eyes as he says it. In the other Gospels, in fact, he adds, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Meaning, she's right in this. This is the priority. This is, this is what ought to be done. Now again, does that mean we don't have to help the poor. Now, I'll come right back to that. But it, it does mean that devotion to Christ comes first. What is the greatest and first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then following after it, second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so these two are connected, but the priority, the first command, is that we must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's, it's not a matter of either or. It is a matter of priority of putting Christ first. Devotion to Christ first. Second, He commends this lavish act of loving devotion in verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now that doesn't mean she's kept back a little of this oil to use later when they bury him. No, no, she has used it all. But what it means is, let her keep the credit of it. Let her keep the intention of this act of worship as being oriented a gift toward my burial. Matthew makes it even more clear in Matthew 26.12 when he says, Jesus says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. This is a preview of things to come. Very, very shortly here, within a week, Jesus indeed is going to die. And so this act of devotion is done in light of the fact that Christ is about to fulfill His mission. He is about to lay down His life. The, the crucifixion is in view here in this passage. 
Now, did Mary fully understand that? I doubt she did understand that fully. All she knows is here's Jesus and I love Him with all my heart and I want to lavish everything I've got on Him. Here is my gift. And in the kind providence of God, her loving service to Jesus will indeed count for the advancement of the Gospel. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 26, 13, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The fragrance of her gift spread not only throughout the room, but throughout the world. As, as, as throughout history now, people look back and they see this act of loving devotion. I mean, isn't that right? Isn't that what we're doing right now? We're remembering what she did in connection to the gospel? I mean, you just helped fulfill prophecy right here, right now. And we're reminded, Christian, that God will use your little acts of devotion to Christ as you give all to Him in ways you can't even fathom. Third, Jesus reminds us of the priority of putting Him first and letting service to others flow from that priority of putting Him first. Verse 8, For the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have Me. Now what does Jesus mean by that? Is He saying to us as Christians, Hey, you don't have to worry about the poor. That, that's no big deal. You have no responsibility to those who are hurting around you. Is that what He's saying? Well, if you know your Bible at all, you know that that is not what He's saying. Just think of passages like Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Or in the New Testament, James 2.14-17, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, no, it's a sham faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go, be warm, be filled, um, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So no, Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the poor. You don't have to give anything to help the poor. So, so what does He mean? Well, this little phrase He uses, the poor you will always have with you, is a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 15.11. And there Moses tells Israel, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Okay, that's basically what Jesus is saying. The poor is always going to be here. You will never cease to have the, to have the poor in the land. But then he goes on and says, Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So interestingly, the very verse he references commands us not to ignore the poor, but to voluntarily be generous to the poor around us. So what on earth does Jesus mean by this? Why, why is he quoting this verse here? Remember, he's responding to Judas's rebuke of Mary for making him, that is, Jesus himself, the priority in the use of this expensive ointment rather than selling it on eBay and giving the proceeds to the poor. His point is, there will be plenty of opportunities for you to take care of the poor in the future. They're always going to be here. Indeed, in, Luke, in Mark, he goes on to say, and that is something that, that you will do. And of course, Christians throughout history have done so. We've always wedded our faith with a concern for people around us. That is an important thing. But here's Jesus' point. It's just not the priority. 
our activism is not the priority. Christ is the priority. In fact, here's a little principle I think comes out of this. Friend, your activism is not the priority. You, Judas, you, church, are not the Savior people need, Jesus says, I am. And the devotion of your heart begins with me, worshiping me for who I am, not with what you're buzzing around trying to do. And so if there there was ever a message that the modern church needed to hear from this, I think it's this. Church, we are not the Savior. Christ is. People don't need us. They need Him. We ourselves will never solve the big issue of world hunger and poverty and the brokenness of this culture by our activism. Ultimately, these are things only Christ can ultimately deal with. But the devotion of our hearts, the energy of our lives must be poured out upon Him. It must start with Him, not with our own plans and actions. Because here's the tragic fact. Start with a concern for man. Make that your top priority. And sooner or later, your love for Christ will grow cold. Let man be your focus and sooner or later, your your love for Christ will grow cold. Think of Judas. But start with love for Christ. Let Him be your priority. Then from that will flow a love for people made in His image that has power to change lives and alter the world as you go out in His name and love them for His sake. But the priority must be on Christ. Oh, if only Judas had understood that. Dear one, do you understand that? And then here's a a final thought. And so to prioritize Christ as Mary has done, to, to identify with Jesus in this way, putting Him first, do you understand? It will cost you. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus famously says to the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross... And follow me. That's the devotion that is required for the disciple. We see that kind of devotion here in Mary. She's willing to bear any cost, to face any ridicule from others, even so-called believers, out of her deep love for Christ. That's what motivates her. That's what shapes her world. We see it also here in Lazarus. Look down to those last verses, verse 9 to 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. Remember, we're just two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's filled with people preparing for the Sabbath. When that large crowd learns Jesus is back, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. These men, these men perceived Lazarus as a threat because of his witness to Christ. His very existence as a living, breathing testimony for Jesus is an offense to these men who are determined to cling to their unbelief. Is your life an offense to those who refuse to see Jesus for who He is. 
Has your allegiance to Him, putting Him first, put you in the crosshairs as someone who, who must be dealt with? And are you willing to pay that price because Jesus is worth it? He's worth it for what He's done. He's worth it for His sacrificial offering. He's worth it for His grace. Following this, Judas will indeed go on to betray Christ. In fact, Matthew 26 makes a clear connection. This is one of the reasons. The rebuke he received from Christ, he's done. Mary, on the other hand, will go on to serve Christ for the rest of her life. She will in fact see the risen Christ. She will declare the news that He has risen. She will serve Him. We don't know all the details. We get to heaven, we can find out. But consider the path of these lives. The one who put Christ above all and the one who put His own position and to see the worthiness of Christ. Lord, we want to be people like Mary who treasure Christ above all, who value Him, who know Him, whose lives are shaped by His presence, who are willing, Lord, to bear any cost, to face any loss, to be ridiculed, to be dismissed, because we have embraced the One who is the true treasure. And so, Lord, as we now move to this celebration of the Lord's Supper, this reminder of who Christ is and and how precious He is, would You even now let us see Jesus? Would You even now let us worship Him and, and pour out our own lives at His feet in response to the gracious gift, not only of the resurrection of a friend, but of His own rising from the dead and the sure promise that we shall be raised as well. In fact, we are raised to new life, even now, through the dying and rising of Jesus. And for this we praise You. Amen. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about, I want you to think about what it means to declare loyalty to Christ in this public way with this meal. There's so many parallels. She declares this public worship of Christ in a meal, and we're about to do the same with a meal. Because that really is one of the things we do when we take the Lord's Supper. As we take these symbols of His body and blood, we are proclaiming Christ's power to save and our allegiance to Him as Savior. And so, if that's not what you are here to do this morning, first of all, we're glad you're here. You're welcome. We love having you with us. But if, but if, but if you don't personally understand who Christ is and what He's done, and you've not indeed received Him as saving Lord, we would, we would gently ask that rather than participating in what we're about to do next, you would observe, you would watch, and you would, would see maybe some clearer view of who Christ is. The Bible literally warns that to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, which means flippantly, casually, not seeing Him for who He is, uh, is a literal danger to your soul. And out of love for you, we say, please just observe. But if you are here as someone who loves Christ and you take Him seriously, you've received Him by grace through faith, because you are trusting Him to save you from your sins and give you new life, we welcome you uh, to come 
and with us proclaim your allegiance to Christ. We welcome you to the table. And so let's, let's draw near to Christ. I'm going to ask the brothers to come and uh, prepare the table. Uh, those of you who are going to, going to help serve, come and, and let's prepare. And let's draw near to Him through these symbols of His presence. So bow and pray with me and we'll, we'll prepare and then we'll distribute. Lord Jesus, just as Mary poured out the oil of her devotion upon Your feet, Help us now to pour out the love of our hearts and the devotion of our lives on Christ as we take this meal and celebrate all that He has done for us and is dying and rising again. We draw near recognizing Christ as the only Lord and Savior, the one who's worthy, not just of, of, of whatever offering we've given this week, not just of whatever service we've managed to give, not just of this symbolic meal, but who is worthy of every breath we take, every beat of our heart, every penny in our bank accounts, every centimeter of everything that we own, our lives, our children's lives, uh, our futures, our, our dignity, our reputation. Jesus is worth having it all. And so we come, Lord Jesus, not because we're buying something from You, but because we're, we're responding to You who purchased everything for us. And so we draw near. And as we draw near, dear one, would you just, in the place of your own heart, would you, would you tell Jesus indeed that you do love Him? I'm not trying to manipulate you. Don't, I'm not putting words in your mouth. But, but, but as that is the genuine disposition of your heart, would you tell Him that you do love Him? Though you love Him imperfectly, and though your love is a, a thin thing at times, and you confess that, it is nevertheless the response of your heart to the greatness of His love for you. Would you tell Him? Would you pledge again to Him the determination of your heart to serve Him with all that you are? Again, every one of us in this room could confess how shallow that commitment has been sometimes, perhaps even this week. How little we know we've done for Him compared to what He is worth. But we come to this meal not proclaiming what we have done or will do, but receiving all that He has done. And so we, we say, Lord Jesus, we come expressing our love for You who loved us so, asking You to increase it expressing to you um, our desire to serve you with everything we have and to obey you in everything, uh, not because we hope to win your approval, but because you've lavished your approval upon us in your dying and rising again and making us your children. And so we come to this meal not hoping to bargain with you, but, but to receive freely what you've given to us and to respond to that freedom by freely giving ourselves. And so, Lord, as we, as we end this day of worship with this Lord's Supper, would you, would you give us hearts that sing and rejoice and respond and yield all to you in light of you who've yielded all for us. We ask this in the name of the mighty Jesus.